So for those of you that were not here last week, let me do this for you because this is part two of one sermon. So imagine a sermon that's about an hour and 45 minutes long and almost cut it in half a little more than than in half. So you're getting the back end of it, so a little bit less than what you got last week. And so let me catch you up to speed just a little bit. So we addressed the concerns and the questions that one might have when you see a leader or you see a prominent figure in, in church life or, 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 or spiritually speaking, and they fall away, they leave the faith, they say, I'm no longer Christian, or they adopt the popular phrase now, I'm ex-Christian. So how do you respond to that? How do you process that kind of information with someone that's got a 10, 20, 30 year legacy that they've built of being a devout follower of Jesus, a legitimate follower of Jesus, theologically sound in their teaching and in their practice, and then all of a sudden they just recant, they renounce. What do you do about that? How do you respond to those things? So we started to kind of address issues that might come up. You know, we talked about, you know, um, how do you reconcile seeing that with seeing fruitful ministry? How do you? How do you process this information? How do you respond to those things? You know, we went through several issues. We talked about the question of the heart's condition. You know, what, what could lead someone to that point? It just shows us how wicked and deceptive the heart really is and how we really have to watch and be careful of these things and make sure that we're leaning on the text, leaning on the Bible as a mirror, as a test to make sure that we're in the faith. We talked about those things. We talked about the question of losing your salvation. Could you lose your, can you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. And we unpacked those things. And we won't do that today, but if, you're, if that is a shoe that fits you right now and something that you want to really be encouraged by or want to have some answers to, I encourage you to go listen to the sermon or I'm happy to send you my notes or I'm happy to have a conversation and unpack some of those things. But this is going to be more of the application section. So again, imagine it's one solid sermon and then we get to the end where it's application. So these things should be stuff that you should be able to put in your your suitcases and take with you wherever you go and start to lean on these things. So in addition to all the stuff that we dealt with last week, here's where I think we are now. And that's the question of how do I really know that I'm in Christ how do I really know that I'm in Christ? This is an important question. You know, and I think if we're really honest, we might not vocalize this, we might not express this out loud, but if we're really honest with each other, there are, there are seasons in our life where we look at ourselves and say, am I really a Christian? Maybe we pit ourselves against other more seasoned believers and say, well, I don't look like that. You know, I don't, I don't talk like that, I don't look like that, I don't think like that, so maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian because that's what it is to be a Christian. And that's not necessarily the case because sanctification is a real thing. God bringing us through to spiritual maturity is a real thing. So someone who's a brand new believer standing next to someone who's been a believer for 40 years should not look the same. That's why the Bible instructs that we pass these truths down to others. That's why the Bible instructs us to move past the spiritual in terms of spiritual food, move on from milk and get to meat. This is what the Apostle Paul talks about. So there's this expectation that there would be growth, and you would look different through that transformation. But I think we have to be honest and be introspective often and say, how do I know? How do I test myself? How do I use the Bible as a mirror so that it can show me where my hope really is? 
and what my confidence and what my faith is built on. So the question is, how do I know if I'm really in Christ? Now, I will say this. I can't tell you definitively, and you can't tell me definitively. We know that. Right? God is the one who gives life. God is the one who rescues out of darkness and brings into light. So I can't tell you. I can tell you that the Bible says, here's some markings, here's some identifiers. You're on the right track. These things are great. And I just want to point you back again to 1 John, 1 John 2, 19, where, Paul said, where John says, he says, they went away from us because they were never of us. And he says, we would have known that they were of us if they would have remained with us. So abiding, enduring, these are the things that are the ultimate sign of whether someone is in Christ or not. So how do we know that we're really in Christ? This question has to come up. If so many have left the faith, and I don't mean they were actual Christians and then lost salvation, but they played the role, they wore the uniform as though they were on the team, and then all of a sudden, no more. With so many going through that kind of transition in their life, with faithful Christian service behind them, with what seems to be true fruit behind them, how can we look at them and not question ourselves from time to time? When I don't look nearly as spiritual as, as this guy or, or, as, or as her or, or whoever. First, let me explain something to you. There is a difference in falling short and falling away. There's a difference in falling short of the glory of God, which all have done and continue to do, and falling away, as in Hebrews 6, apostasy, as in impossible to restore them to repentance. There's a big difference, and that should be of great comfort to you. This is not a situation where you must, you must repent or be right after every single sin or else you're done. Because when Christ died, the potency of the atonement was that he covered all sins, not just what you had committed up to that point, but all you ever would commit. That's what the Bible teaches. So understand that there's a difference in falling short and falling away. David fell short. David's sin, his great sin with Bathsheba, David a king, David a man after God's own heart, David a man who got this woman pregnant that he saw bathing, and his lusts were enticed, they were, uh, uh, they were piqued, and what does he do? He goes and he has her. He has her when her husband was out on the battlefield. David should have been there, but instead he wasn't. Why? Because of the lust of his flesh, which is what was driving him. So David was falling short. David had not apostatized. David was falling short. He believed God. He followed God. But David succumbed to the desires of his flesh. But what did David do which shows us the difference? David repented. David, David laid with this woman however you say that, he was with this woman, and then she becomes pregnant, and in order to hide it, because he tried to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he tried to get her to come and be with her, take time off the battlefield, come enjoy your wife, enjoy your union, enjoy what you have, and Uriah, being an upstanding man, said, no, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to be out on the battlefield where the other men are, they don't get to come home and enjoy their families, they don't get to come home and be with their wives, so I'm not going to do that either. And because David couldn't coerce him to do that, to cover up his own sin, his own shame, he sends him out there and sends a letter to the commander so that they would put Uriah to the front line of battle, ensuring that he would die. And that's what happened. And so David's sinful offense ranks among the top of offenses in the Bible. But David repented. David is not an apostate. David fell short. Peter fell short 
when he denied Christ. He didn't apostatize. Many others fell short. Judas is an example of someone who was enlightened, who tasted, who saw, who did these things, and someone who truly was an apostate. He is the one that when you look at Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, you can say that's a connection there. He is someone that it's impossible for him to be restored to repentance. So there's a difference in falling away and falling short. So, but here's a few questions for self honest for honest self-examination. So here's your practical side. If you want to really start asking yourself some questions, here's some questions that I think are good for you. First of all, ask yourself, is my life characterized by repentance? Is your life characterized by repentance? That's what we see in the scripture. This is what John taught, John the Baptist. He comes out and he says, look, I'm here to prepare the way for Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what he says. So one of the markings of a believer is obviously repentance. It's repentance. I'm not talking about rededication because there's a difference in rededication and repentance. If you are a repenter, that is a sign of your dedication to God. If I'm pursuing Jesus, I'm going to fall on the way. It does not mean I'm not dedicated to the Lord. Dedication is I am going to, despite my broken, fallen humanity, despite my sinful nature, I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to sin on the way because guess what? That's what sinners do. That's what our nature does. I'm going to sin on the way, but I'm going to sin falling forwards. I'm going to sin pursuing you, and I'm going to repent. I need you to pick me up because I can't pick myself up. I need you to clean me off because I can't do that. I need you to make me presentable because I, in and of myself, my, my righteousness is filthy rags, but I need you to carry me. I need you to do those things because that's what dedication looks like. Dedication looks like repentance. Are we no longer dedicated to Christ because we fall short? No, not at all. But repentance is the litmus test, I think, for someone who's in Christ, or at least it's an indication We can't know definitively looking at one another, but we can see the fruits of repentance and say, by all indications, without being God and seeing the true nature, seeing the true answer, I can see evidences of what seem to be legitimate. Repentance is a change of mind that leads us to a change of action. We, when we repent, we think differently about our sins. It's not, ah, I'd do it again. I just hate that I hurt somebody. I hate that I got caught, so I better make amends. That's not repentance. Repentance is a guilt that comes on by the Holy Spirit in the kindness of the Lord because it says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And it causes us to look at our sin and hate our sin because of its offense against a holy God. And that change of mind leads us to a change of action. It's not about being sorry, not just about being sorry that we've hurt someone or that we got caught. It's sorrow for the sin itself and the offense against God. David's life was an offense against God. Excuse me. David's life was characterized by repentance. There's another question I think you should ask. So the first one is, is my life characterized by repentance? Do you repent? Are you a repenter? You should have to just about daily. <laughs> you should have to. And this is okay. This is good for you to repent. If you did not, I would be very, very concerned and say the Holy Spirit of God may not be in you. So another question is this, is my faith characterized by the evidence I see or by what others are convinced they see? Let me, re- let me repeat that. Is my faith, and ask yourself this, is my faith characterized by the evidence I see 
or by what others are convinced they see. In other words, is my faith my own or am I relying on someone else's convictions or beliefs? Can I articulate or argue my way out of a wet paper bag as to what my hope is in? Or are you saying, I'm in Christ, I have hope, and someone says, well, what is it that you believe? And you point them to this theologian, you point them to this author, you point them to this pastor, to this Christian. Or is it your own? Is it a faith that you've laid hold of? Is it a faith that you have become convinced of because the Word of God through the Holy Spirit of God, has made revelation to you and has brought about this conviction in your life. So is your faith characterized by the evidence you see or by what you are convinced that others see? Do you believe because your mother believes? Do you believe because your pastors believe? Do you believe because someone you admire believes? It's interesting because when Jesus is speaking to the disciples at one point in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, Jesus says to them, he says, who do people say I am? What are people saying about me? Well, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say an apostle, or some say uh, John the Baptist, some say a prophet, some say Elijah. And then he turns it on them and he says, all right, here's what I'm concerned with. Who do you say I am? Because Jesus wants to know what your convictions are. What do you think? Who do you say I am? And I would say that he turns the same question onto you and onto me. Because when we give an account of our life, it's not, well, my mama really believed and I trust her. So I have this generational saving thing happening because I'm a connected to her biologically. No. The question will be, who do you say I am? What did you do with Jesus in belief and in practice? So is your faith characterized by the evidence you see or by what you're convinced others see? Another question is, is my faith based on a feeling or on what I'm convinced of in the Scripture? And I know that's closely related to the last question, but this is leaning more on the feeling, on the emotional side of things. Did you have some kind of emotional response when you went to a judgment house or when you went to a heaven's gates and a hell's flames, which those things can easily prey on, uh, prey on emotions through manipulation? Not saying they all do. Some of those things are great and fine, but sometimes people respond out of emotion. Sometimes people hear a story about puppy dogs and grandmas and it stirs their emotions and they say, I want this. I've been to camp after camp after camp being involved with these camps, both as camp pastors, both as taking, uh, taking students to these things. And you know what? You're at the end of a week. You've had this great week because you've been removed from technology. You've been removed from media. You've been removed from all these things. And you actually get with God and all of these things. And at the end of it, people are kind of upset because they've seen friends that they haven't seen in a year. And they know they've got to go back home. They've got to go back to school they got to go back to chores so emotions are going plus you're talking about some that are prepubescent you're talking about some that are very young and they're adolescent so it's the perfect storm for drama it's the perfect storm for all kinds of emotionalism and I've seen it I've seen a sea of kids almost a thousand kids holding hands linking arms waving back and forth all this kind of stuff and I'm not saying it's not legitimate but I'm saying sometimes it's not I'm saying sometimes it's not. And I've seen seas. I've seen floods of kids run down. I've seen my own students flood the, flood the front, and they are confessing. They're doing all this stuff. And 24 hours later, they don't look anything like Jesus. And I have to, beg, I have to ask the question, was, was that legitimate or was it an emotional response to some kind of experience? Because if your faith rests on an emotional experience 
and it might not be saving faith. Because emotions change. If your faith rests on the belief of someone else and then their beliefs change, what does that say about yours? We have to be very, very careful. The Bible reveals a number of evidences for us as evidence of being a true follower of Christ. Let me give you some. Fruits of the Spirit. You've got to have the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God works to express these fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all this kind of stuff. Repentance is an evidence of a follower of Christ. Making a practice of righteousness as opposed to making a practice of sin, 1 John, is an evidence of repentance or an evidence of being in Christ. Keeping God's commandments. Jesus said himself in John 15, 14 or 14, 15, I can't remember, he said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Your interest in the local church because how can you love Christ but not love his bride? I think your loyalty, your devotion to Christ's church is an indication of whether or not you're in Christ. Loving your brother is an indication of you being in Christ. First John, again, but one of the strongest, and I would say probably the strongest, is that you will endure to the end. And why is it that you endure? I'm not making it about you. I'm not saying, okay, you've finally proven it. Man, they stayed the course. They proved themselves, and I believe. They're in the ground now, but I believe finally because they stayed the course. You only endure because Christ keeps you. And that's the evidence. That's the evidence. This is why if one of you trail off into sin, we're going to confront you. I don't mean to insult you. I'm not even coming in, I'm not even saying to you, you know what, we're going to assume that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But we're going to take it just that serious. Because we know that if you can play the game for 10 years, you can play the game for 20. If you can play it for 20, you can play it for 30. And you can bamboozle, you can fool, and you can fraud the whole time. And fool me. And it's not that difficult. But at the end of the day, endurance is the true test. And that's why John says we would have known that they were with us if they would have remained with us. It's likely that many, of, many if not all, Christians will encounter times where they have a faith crisis, where they're really looking at themselves and saying, am I really in the faith? So what do you do when you're in the midst of a faith crisis? I mean, let's be honest. I've had those. I've had those since I've lived here. I've told people before, I've never felt a a an oppression in my life spiritually. I've never felt it to the degree that I have since I've moved here. And it's not because this is such a dark, reprobate, reprobate place. I'm not saying that. It, I, I think maybe, maybe, maybe I've been targeted. Maybe the enemy's uh, shooting those arrows at me. Maybe that's happening. And God's saying, you need to pursue me. You need to run to me. You need to cling to me. You need to cling tightly to me. Don't run away from truth. Don't, wanna ra- don't run away from reality. Run to reality. So what do you do when you're in a crisis of faith? Because that's where we need to get honest. Nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to say, you know what, I, I kind of doubt sometimes. Things pop in my mind voluntarily or involuntarily, and I really struggle. Nobody wants to say that because of what we're afraid someone else might say. Well, you must not really be a Christian if you ever doubted your faith. Well, that's baloney. Read, read, read some of the greatest minds and the greatest missionaries and the greatest theologians and see how often they bring up the issue of a faith crisis. Read John Bunyan, read David, uh, 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 David Brainerd, read these people and see what they struggled with. And we look at them from the outside and say there could not be 
people walking more closely with Jesus than these men. And yet they're crying out to God, am I even in Christ? Am I even right with you, God? Do I even belong? So I think if we're honest, we all experience a faith crisis. And let me talk to you about how that might manifest. It might manifest manifest in your struggle to trust the power of God. You might struggle to trust the power of God. Can God really help me in this time? I need him. Can he help me? Maybe you would say, God's not restored my marriage. Maybe God can't restore my marriage. Maybe God doesn't have the power to do that, so maybe you go to other things or maybe you just give up. God won't forgive me for this. I've done something far worse than anybody's ever done. God just can't forgive me. He can't do that. That's a faith crisis. It's a distrust. It's unbelief in the power of God. But not only do we struggle to trust the power of God, but sometimes our faith crisis is represented in the struggle to trust the promises of God. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it is what we understand from the Scriptures. But will God really give me rest if I go to Him? His grace is sufficient for me in times of all times. Is, is, can I really go to Him? You know, what you believe is evidence in what you do. So when you're in your moment of suffering, when you're in your moment of the pit in life, where do you go? Do you go to secular sources? Do you go to an alternate reality to try to find some kind of solace, some kind of comfort? Or do you cling to Jesus? Or do you cling to truth? Do you cling to his word? If not, your faith crisis in that moment says, I struggle to rest or trust in the promises of God. But what about when your faith crisis said, I struggle to trust the nature and the character of God? Scripture says that God is good, but what about all these horrible things that happen under his sovereign watch? How can he be good and all these horrible things happen to good people? There's no one good, no, not one, but, but we understand the sentiment. But what about when your faith, Christ take, your faith crisis takes you to this place where you struggle to trust in even the existence of God? God, I pray and I don't, I don't hear you. God, you... You seem like you'd want to interact with your child, but I never hear you. You know, God, all these horrible things are happening. People are blaspheming you, tragedy, destruction, shooting, all these things happen. And you could have stopped it, but you don't. I don't get you or you're not there. Maybe that's what your faith crisis looks like. It makes you question the reality of God altogether. Because you say, here's my understanding of what God should do and how he should act. And here's how I've framed this. And if it doesn't fit into that framing, then maybe you go to the place where you just discount the reality altogether. If you have a faith crisis, let me just tell you, you're in good company. You're in great company. Listen to this. The disciples had a faith crisis. Do you remember when Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and the storm came up and the waves were crashing And Jesus was doing what? He was taking a siesta. He was napping. Jesus don't care about no waves. He ain't worried about that. He he commanded them. He created them. He says, hey, you know, I'm going to speak and all these things happen. He's not going to be threatened by some winds or some waves or some rain. But the disciples are. They freak out. They're in a panic. And what happens? He comes up and he says, shh, be still. Then he looks at them and says, you have a little faith. Faith crisis That the Son of God, the creator of all things, sovereign over wind, sovereign over rain, sovereign over weather, sovereign over all things, and yet they are in a panic because there's a little spritz of water coming over the boat. 
I'm sure it was worse than that. I read that story and I'm like, Jesus, I would be the disciples. I would freak out if I was in the boat. I'd be like, Jesus, you got to wake up and do something. We're about to die. I would panic. And it's interesting because then you look at another person who had a crisis of faith, and his name is Peter. And both of these are boat water instances, which tells us to stay off of boats and out of water. So Jesus is coming off of land. The disciples are in the boat, and Peter sees Jesus from a long way off, right? And Peter says, tell me to come out the boat. Tell me to step out. I'm coming out. I have faith. Jesus says, step out. Peter steps out, and he's walking on water for a second, but then he began to sink. And I heard one pastor say one time, that's because Peter lost trust in himself. (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. It had nothing to do with Peter and his self-confidence. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus Peter's faith began to wane as he stood out on the water. And that's exactly what Jesus explains as you go through that text in Matthew chapter 14. Peter's faith in himself wasn't the issue. It was his faith in Jesus that was waning at the moment. So what do we do when our faith is in crisis? Like the disciples here, like Peter, what do we do? How do we respond? I think a more normative response comes in one of three. I think this, I think we either run away from truth, I think we're immobilized, or we run to truth. So sometimes these crises call us to run away from truth. We retreat to hobbies, work, relationships, and anything that will alleviate the issue of absolute truth and its implications. You're having a faith crisis. Follow me on this. You're in a faith crisis. Something has happened. You've lost a loved one. There's been a disaster. There's been yet another shooting or something. You've prayed and you feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel dark. You feel all these things. And by your own understanding, you're going through the right steps to pursue a healthy and vibrant, robust relationship with Jesus. But you just feel alone. And so there's this voluntary or involuntary thought that creeps into your brain God's not real. He's not there. He's not powerful. If he was, why are all these things happening? And sometimes we run away and we say, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. That's, that's too real for me. So I'm going to run away and I'm going to, I'm going to give myself to my hobbies. I'm going to give myself to my relationships. I'm going to give myself to my work. I'm going to put it out of sight so that it will then be out of mind. And this is a very dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be because it makes you vulnerable and susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. You become weak and your defenses aren't strong enough to withstand the arrows of the enemy. And I understand that God can do all things. I understand that it's not about you and it's not about how strong you are and how much you can fight against wickedness. But let me just say, the Bible says what it says for a reason. When it says man does not live on bread alone, but from every mouth that comes from the word of God. When it says to put on the full armor of God, and a part of that is the truth, is equipping yourself with truth. Pastors are to equip the saints for the work of service so that you can do the work of the missionary, so that you can do these things, so that you can be equipped in body and of mind, so that you can give a defense, so that you're not, what, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. There is a responsibility that rests on you when it comes to truth 
and the truth that you carry with you. Distancing ourselves from crisis will eventually foster a coldness within. And it only leads to shipwreck. But what about for those that it immobilizes? I think of the 1986 movie Stand By Me where you got the boys who are trying to find this dead body. They just want to see it. Just curious little adolescent boys who've heard this and they're like, we got to go check this out. So they go and there's a scene where they go through this tunnel where the train tracks are. And they're about halfway through and a train's coming. They can't go back toward the train. There's no time. So they have to outrun the train. And they're getting after it as fast as they can. And, you know, the whole thing is building suspense. And there's one kid that's slower than the rest of them. And he just finally panics. He finally just immobilizes. And he hugs the tracks. Not going to go well for him. But they finally pry him off the tracks. And he makes it off. If I've spoiled something for somebody, you've had since 1986. (laughs) Sometimes we're immobilized. And I think there's three possible contributors to immobilization. That's fear. You don't want to know because what you don't want to know because of what that might mean for you. That's a little too real for you. I'm in faith crisis. I just don't want to know. I'm happy in my ignorance. I'm happy not knowing. I just want to stay here. I don't want to go this way. I don't want to pursue truth because I'm afraid of what I might find out there. I don't want to pursue this or I don't want to do that because I'm afraid of what I might find out on the other side. I think fear immobilizes us. Apathy immobilizes us. You don't care enough to do anything. Ah, these thoughts go through your brain, but you just sit on it. Ah, it's just a season. I'll get through it. Whatever. Or maybe it's just ignorance. You just don't know what to do. This is new to you. You don't know how to respond. You don't know what's right. You don't know what's wrong. But nonetheless, you're immobilized. I think faith crisis can do that to us. And I think both are detrimental. Running away from truth and being immobilized are very detrimental. But the third is when a faith crisis causes us to press in towards truth. A faith crisis can be a good thing for a Christian when it causes us to cling more tightly to Christ. That's what we need to do. When those moments come up, the right course of action is to press into Jesus, press into his word. But how can we be prepared for a faith crisis? I'm going to give you some very practical help here. How can we be prepared for when a faith crisis occurs? Keep in mind that the enemy, that the enemy, that Satan is good at making untruth very appeasing, making it very believable. Because you're thinking Adam and Eve are in the garden. You know, I mean, can you imagine how spectacular this scene is? Can you imagine they're seeing God's creation in this magnificent garden, this divine garden? without any hindrances to the way that they can experience it because they don't, they're not broken or fallen yet. So they're seeing the product of God's perfections right in front of their face. They're existing right in the center of it, something you and I have never experienced and won't on this side of heaven. But they're experiencing it. But Satan comes up as a serpent, I believe, and he takes something that's false and he makes it appealing. He makes it attractive, so he's good at this. He's really good at this. Do not be fooled. So I think one of the ways that we can prepare ourselves for a crisis of faith is that we would develop a robust apologetic. Develop a robust apologetic. What if there's a clear answer to what appears to be a difficult question? If you don't know the answer, you could be shaken towards unbelief, right? Some of us are afraid to enter into conversations with people because we're afraid they'll ask things that we don't know. 
And maybe we really want to be helpful, so we say, you know what, I, I don't want to confuse the issue, so I'm just going to stay out of it. Or maybe it's our pride that says, I just really don't like the idea that I don't know something. But Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, Paul makes it clear the desire is that you would not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but that you would grow into a mature man. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So there's an admonition from the text, and there's an expectation in the text for us to develop strong defenses for the hope that's in us. And you're foolish if you would say, well, let's leave that to the theologians, let's leave that to the pastors. No, you have to give a defense for the hope that's in you. You're going to be approached with these things. Your kids are going to ask you. Your kids are going to be pressed by other kids. And then they're going to say, hey, this person said this to me. How do I give a defense? Because we can't expect them to understand these things. So we have to be ready to give a defense for these things. The pastors don't exist for all the parents to bring the, pa- to bring the kids to the pastor's office, which is in my master bedroom, by the way. So the, we don't, we don't, we don't, that, that, that's not the idea. That's fine. But we want parents, we want you to know that you are disciple makers and the primary disciple makers for your children. So develop a robust defense preemptively. Read, study, prepare, engage. Read the Bible, read biographies, autobiographies, church history, works of apologetics. Read theology, etc. and etc. Read, read, and read. Get this information coming into your mind that God through his means might sharpen and might refine you and might help to develop a robust theology for you. Study, think through it, labor to make the concepts and the constructs an effortless and airtight argument in your own mind. It's one thing to read and not process. Read it, study it, become acquainted with it, make sense of these things, prepare You say, prepare for what? Take what you've studied and frame it in such a way that you can present it. Don't just study. Don't just take a whole bunch of notes. Because what if your notes aren't structured well? What if they're just like me and you've got things that are just all over the pages? That's how I take notes a lot of times. And then later, if I haven't framed it right, I'm like, "I I don't understand. In the back of my Bible, when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, I have a systemization of, of how I present it is systematized so that it's coherent, so that it's cogent, so that it's logical. I walk through things because I want to think through these things. I want to have a way that I can present rather than having just grabbing things out of thin air, rather than having some weird, wild, chaotic way of presenting it. I want to prepare in such a way that I can present it so that it makes sense. And that takes work. So read, study, prepare, and engage. Nothing sharpens your defenses. Nothing strengthens your defenses more than when they are tested. So you can sit and you can read and study and you can prepare, but it's when you engage. It's when you say, this is what I've prepared for. And I'm going to encounter, I'm going to engage. I'm going to try out this weaponry that I have in battle. That's when you find out what you're made of. And you know what happens? You come back and like, they asked this question. I didn't know how to respond. They said this, and I was totally clueless. And that is a good thing. Because you're never going to arrive on a battlefield knowing how to 
beat every single enemy in their fighting styles. You go and you experience. You say, wow, I didn't have a response for that. But I will next time. I'll be ready. You see, I know very little about car engines, so if I'm trying to help somebody, I can say, look, you got gas in your tank? If not, you ain't going anywhere. I can say, look, your spark plugs, wherever they are, they, they got to be good. I don't know how you know if they aren't or are, but they got to be good. You can lick them or something, you know. <laughs> That'll tell you if they're plugged in especially. I don't know much, but if somebody else comes up and says, hey, have you checked your cylinders, your valves, your pistons, you know, your crankshafts, your connecting rods, your piston rings, all that kind of stuff, we'd be like, listen to this person, right? Or they could be like O'Reilly's or something. These people know this jargon, but they don't know how to apply it, right? So you never know. Likewise, if you all, if you, if you, if all you know, if your theology, if your apologetic, if your defense is God is good, I'll just go to everybody and I'll say God is good. God loves you. That's what I'll say. Is it true? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. God good, man. He's good. And then someone says, "Okay, he, he's good, but God. Correct me if I'm wrong, but God is good, but He's responsible for what happened to Job, right?" Well, well, yeah. I mean, Satan was wandering around, and God said, have you considered my servant Job? Go get him, but don't do this or do that. But God is good. But he's, but he's not, because he did this to Job. What did Job do to him? God is good. But God killed, God killed David's baby. God said it. Well, he's good. But how is he good if he killed David's baby? You see, if, you're, if your defense is just that, it's not really a defense. God is good. Well, what about Jesus was crucified according to what God's hand and plan predestined to occur? So at the end of the day, if I'm putting two and two together, God must not be good. It says that it pleased the Father to crush, crush the Son. So how is God good in that? That doesn't make sense. What is he up there smiling and snickering because his Son is being destroyed? What, what does God as good do for me? That's not a robust apologetic. And it demands that you have one. But I would say also avoid intellectual laziness. Avoid intellectual laziness. Are you bothered when someone challenges your worldview intellectually to the extent that you have no response? Does it bother you? That you say something and they say something back, you're like, I really have no clue. And it makes you look like Christianity's wrong. It's like, I don't know how to respond to that. It happens all the time. It happens to me. Ah. And there's some pride there, I admit. There's some pride, but then there's some true desire to be helpful and to say no no here's here's the way you need to look at this here's the right lens think preemptively consider questions or challenges before they occur but also work reactively use the challenges use the unknowns use the problems that you encounter so that you can walk away and become informed stay in your lane be careful not to get immersed in a field that is not your own if you are not a scientist it might be a great idea for you to not argue science, okay? I'm not going to argue engines. I'm just not. If I'm having a conversation with someone, they bring weird mythology and all this kind of stuff that I've never even heard of, I'm not going to try and drive in that lane. I'm going to say, let's stay over here. Let's stay over here. I'm pretty stubborn. Stubborn. I'm like, we're going we're gonna, to, this is our dance floor. We're going to do that here. Stay in touch with reality as opposed to retreating to some false reality. A false reality can desensitize you. Again, 
Netflix, games, you know, uh, hobbies, all these things that remove you from having to deal with what's at stake. Avoid those things. Not don't do those things as though they're wrong, but in terms of preparing yourself and in terms of building an apologetic and in terms of all these things, avoid intellectual laziness. Run to truth. Develop a strong truth. Stay in your lane. Stay in touch with reality. We need to be mindful that all these things are real and there is much at stake because it's easy to forget it. It's easy to forget it. Just like there's so many horror films and there's so much cool stuff that you can do with CGI that our world, especially in North America, is desensitized to demon possession. And we have people that go out and they look and hunt for these things because they're desensitized because that's all we've known. We've known these things. People play with Ouija boards because we're desensitized. We've seen all these things. Hollywood has fed us a buffet of all the kind of stuff we can get freaked out by. And then we hear of something here, hear of something there that may or may not be real. And we're like, eh, whatever, it's commonplace. Stay in touch with reality. Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Timothy, by Paul, is admonished to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And I think the same is applicable for you, is that you have to preach to yourself over and over and over again. The sentiment is true for ourselves. Depending on the season, we may need to preach those same truths to ourselves so that we can be reminded of where our hope is. And finally, at this, at this point, fill your days with the things that stir your affections for Jesus. To borrow a phrase from Matt Chandler, that's what we need to do. So those are six tips, six helps that can help you, that can help you to develop a robe, or that, that can help you in preparing for when and if a faith crisis might come. And the final thing is this, and it's short. How do we respond? How do we respond as a church? to something like someone who has fallen away, to something like someone who has walked this walk for so long and it seems legitimate and then all of a sudden they've recanted. How do we deal with that as a church? How do we respond to those things? Well, first of all, we grieve. If it doesn't grieve you, check yourself because it should. It should grieve us that the world is broken. It should grieve us that we have friends and family that are lost. We have husbands, we have wives that are lost. It should grieve us. The issue of falling away is the worst possible scenario. Consider the implications. They're separate from God. God's unsettled displeasure against sin for all time is waiting to be poured out on them in form of his wrath. Think about it. We would, we would run to help an enemy. We would run to help someone that we really didn't like if they were drowning, their house was on fire, a shark was about, well, maybe not a shark was about to attack. We would really, really do a lot of things. Our perspective would shift if someone we really didn't care for was in dire need, we'd kind of table that. We'd put that to the side. So I think we should apply that kind of perspective to those who are lost and those who are dying without Christ. Because is there any greater danger than the danger of God's wrath? No. I think we grieve. I think we pray. How many of you have found yourselves more devoted to prayer like me all is falling apart as opposed to things going well. Man, I run to God when things are busted up. <laughs> oh, God, I need you. Oh, God, I need you badly. I've done, this, I've done this thing. Lord, I've said this to my wife, and I'm afraid she's going to kill me in my sleep. God, I need you. Help me, Lord. 
You know, I'm sleeping under the house, but it's not far enough. It's not safe enough. You know, so we go to God and we, we have these crazy, dire needs. We come together when catastrophe strikes. We tend to become unified when things are all busted up and when everything hits the fan. A situation doesn't get more serious than a soul that's condemned. And so we pray. Not only do we pray, but we plead. We plead with God in prayer and we plead with those who are estranged from God. We plead. This is evidenced in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you. We beg you. On behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. So we beg people. We plead with them. But we also realize We realize that we are weak and in need of the gospel every day. That sitting and listening to me talk for 45 minutes in a week or Austin is not going to sustain you. It's not enough. We are broken and we need the gospel every day of our lives. We need the word of God to fuel us because man doesn't live by bread alone but from every word that comes from his mouth. We need to realize that the ultimate proof of our sincere faith is enduring to the end. Show me someone who endured to the end, and I will show you someone whom Christ kept and in whom the work God started was made complete. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would watch ourselves closely. Lord, that the Bible would become a mirror for us, that we would consider it And we would allow it to show us things about ourselves that we don't want to see. That we wouldn't run away from truth, but we would run to it. Seeking, begging, desiring for it to show us things that we need to see. And Lord, I pray that your word would do just that. Lord, I pray that you would carry us to where we need to be. Father, I pray for people like Joshua Harris, for people like Derek Webb, and a whole host of others who are claiming to be or who are identifying as ex-Christians. Lord, whether they were in the faith legitimately and are just in a season, and you're going to bring them to repentance, or they were never in the faith and they need repentance unto salvation, you know that, we do not. But we pray for repentance nonetheless. Lord, I pray that we would be grieved over these things, that we would plead with you, plead with them, that we would pray over them, pray for them, or that we would teach our children to pray for such things. And we would pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would guard us, that you would keep us from shipwreck, that you would keep us from catastrophe, that you would keep us from these things by your grace. Father, that you would keep your word attractive to us, keep in us a strong desire to grow in Christ and to be like him and to represent him well to the world that's around us. Father, I pray that you would ignite those things in us, Lord, that you would keep that flame going, keep it burning white hot for for you and for your glory. Father, let us not grow cold in our love for you. Let us not be weak in our theology. Let us not be weak in our defense or our apologetic. But, Lord, that it would be full, that it would be firm, strong, robust, that it would be meaningful. Lord, so that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by everything that comes through and entices us, that every untruth that the enemy molds and paints into something that we at the moment seem as though it's more desirous than you. I pray that you would, God the Father, keep Jesus in our perspective 
in our view and in our lane. Lord, and let us see him as the truly preeminent one that we might not fall away, that we might not look to any other savior or to any other groom, but that he would be enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Austin's going to come up. We're going to close out. It's going to take a few minutes to do our to do our communion. Austin. Little congestion, so <laughs> um, it's timely that we have communion this morning um, because it is a, a, a sobering opportunity.